Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay, and this episode is an extension of a video that I made for YouTube on MLMs, pyramid schemes, and all that jazz. Some extra bonus things that we're going to be talking about in this episode are uh, shaky claims from some questionable MLMs, diving into the role of social media in building an MLM empire, testimonials from listeners, and of course, an interview at the end with someone who knows more about the subject than I do. Let's define MLMs so that we're all on the same page. Multi-level marketing is sometimes called network marketing and frequently abbreviated as MLM, which is confusing because the first time I learned what an MLM was, um, it was it stood for men loving men. <laughs> but in the business world, MLM refers to multi-level marketing, which is a retail business model built on person-to-person sales. Here's what happens. Individuals join the MLM under a title called distributor, participant, or contractor. But no matter the title, the person's job is to be a salesperson. So they're supposed to sell the products that the MLM is marketing. Unlike an employee selling goods at a store, MLM distributors will sell their products independently. Kind of like Girl Scouts selling cookies. Just to be clear, I don't think Girl Scouts are MLM adjacent unless they are aiming to be cookie entrepreneurs and actively recruiting people to sell Thin Mints, um, which I don't think they're doing last time I checked. I'm just saying it's like when every member is tasked to sell their own supply of goods on their own time rather than through like operating a storefront. Another difference from a traditional sales job is the risk involved. MLM distributors often have to uh, buy their own supply at a wholesale price from the company, so they carry the financial risk of unsold goods. A lot of companies will not just give you the supply, they expect you to buy the supply and then resell them at a higher price point. However, the biggest difference between MLM and traditional sales is that MLM distributors are also expected to recruit new people. And these recruits are referred to as their downline. And um, on the flip side, their superiors are referred to as their upline. And a lot of the times, the upline gets a percentage of sales that the downline makes. So the more people you recruit, the more lucrative your career becomes. People also tend to use the terms MLM and pyramid scheme pretty interchangeably, including myself, um, but they are technically different. From what I gather, all pyramid schemes are MLMs, but not all MLMs are pyramid schemes. Because according to the Federal Trade Commission, pyramid schemes are actually illegal. They're considered illegitimate businesses. But just because an MLM is legal doesn't mean that they still carry a lot of risk to be involved with them. Like just because you're part of an MLM that is recognized by the FTC doesn't mean you're actually going to make any money. In fact, Dr. John M. Tyler wrote for the Consumer Awareness Institute that less than 1% of MLM participants make profit. So let's dive into the seedy underbelly of MLMs. This is a written response I received. Hello, Miss Mina. I hope you're doing well. So to put it simply, I was unknowingly a sales rep for an MLM when I was 10 years old. In my tiny little Canadian town, we have a yearly winter carnival, which features a princess pageant. As far as pageants go, this is one of the less abhorrent ones. It's mostly teenage girls doing volunteer work while wearing tiaras, sashes, and big winter coats. 
There was a junior portion of this for younger girls that had virtually no competitive aspects, and there were three winners who just had to write an essay to win. However, for my year, in order to qualify to even participate, we had to sell around $200 worth of Scentsy products, complete with handing out pamphlets advertising all the perks of becoming a part of the team. As I found out recently from a former pageant girl, this pageant was not sponsored by Scentsy, but one of the head organizers was a Scentsy consultant. I sold these big old cubes to so many family members and now know that my aunt ended up buying into the company and that she actually lost money in the process. I have no clue how much of the money went to the pageant, but I honestly doubt it was much considering how much of our own stuff we had to pay for. But oh well, that was my brief experience as a 10-year-old MLM girly. It boggles my mind no adults thought twice about the whole situation, but that was almost a decade ago. So maybe the reality of MLMs just wasn't discussed so freely back then. I got a TR out of it anyways. Win! (laughs) I'm honestly speechless because I've never heard of children being roped into MLM schemes before, but that's crazy. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but I assume you didn't really realize what was going on when you were 10. And I assume the person who wrote this into me, you're not into MLMs and that you are not in a vulnerable place to be participating in MLMs, hence the tone of this message. But just thinking about all these 10-year-old girls who probably grew up to become MLM boss babes because they were just taught from a young age how to ask family members and friends to buy their products and they probably did door-to-door canvassing and, you know, they just grew up in an environment where this is such a normal career path and that it's something like within their comfort zones that's so icky. But I think the most horrifying part about this message is that the woman just decided to use the event to raise her own sales. It wasn't even something that Sensi put her up to, which is wild. But also, it reminded me about this story that I read. It was this woman who had cancer, and then she recovered from it, and it came back, and then she recovered from it again, so she's fine. But when she had gotten that cancer diagnosis for the second time, she was part of an MLM, and she used her diagnosis to guilt her friends and family and other people into buying her products to support her. And... Um, she said that it was her, actually her upline who told her she should use her cancer to raise sales, which is a crazy thing to say to someone. And she since realized that that wasn't a good thing for her to do. But yeah, I would not be surprised that this woman's, um, who ran this beauty pageant, her upline told her (laughs) to use the 10 year old girls to sell products. Um, But I also wouldn't even be surprised if she came up with that idea herself because people will do anything for money. It's bonkers. The earliest version of an MLM um, in the way that we know it today traces back to the 1940s in America. But other forms of direct selling like peddlers and consignment shops have been around since colonial days. In the early 20th century, we can look at Madam C.J. Walker's African-American beauty product company. Madam C.J. Walker was the first woman and first black millionaire in the United States, and she adopted a quote-unquote pyramid structure for her company, which was a common practice among women entrepreneurs at the time. Operator agents would sell beauty services and products and recruit women into their organizations and train them in their systems. The Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company provided employment for over 3,000 people, and Walker herself claimed that her multi-level sales force had over 20,000 agents by 1919. 
Unfortunately, because this was a considerably long time ago, um, we know the general structure of these organizations and companies, but we don't know like the nitty gritty details of how it all worked. The modern multi-level marketing structure can be attributed to the California Vitamin Company, now known as Neutralite, in the 1940s. Specifically, according to some records, to the company's founder, Dr. Carl Renborg, and according to other records, to the men in charge for national distribution of Renborg's products, Lee S. Meitinger and William S. Castleberry. According to these sources, Meidinger and Castleberry, in consultation with or under the direction of Dr. Renberg, devised an approach whereby distributors purchased products at a 35% discount and then sold those products, while also recruiting new distributors in a pyramid-type structure. The original distributor would become eligible for bonuses and commissions based on the number of customers and distributors working below him. The original distributor would become eligible for bonuses and commissions based on the number of customers and distributors working under him. So basically like a downline. Around the same time, Stanley Home, a cleaning products company, debuted the home selling method. This is when a salesperson is invited by a host or hostess to use their living room and demonstrate to all the guests how to use the product. So... This woman named Brownie Wise worked for Stanley Home in the 1940s, but she quickly saw how successful this home selling model was and started her own business, Patio Parties, in the late 1940s. She used her company to sell household goods, including Tupperware. She also recruited other housewives as part of her sales force. So, the thing about Tupperware, Tupperware is made of polyethylene plastic and is used as storage containers, specifically for food. It was invented by businessman Earl Tupper, and the best-selling product was known as the Wonder Bowl. He initially didn't find any success when he first introduced the product because a lot of housewives were unsure about using plasticware in their kitchens. Um, the standard for the time was to use ceramic or glass containers. Plastic smelled kind of bad, it was kind of oily, and it looked and felt cheap. Also, as most of us know today, Tupperware has a unique feature. It has airtight and watertight lids, but these lids needed to be burped beforehand before they would seal. But unfortunately, this only confused customers more, and a lot of housewives returned the product saying that the lids didn't fit the containers. So when Brownie started demonstrating how to use the Tupperware at these home parties, people started to buy them because they finally learned how to use them. In 1951, Tupperware actually recruited her and made her vice president of marketing. Brownie's parties also weren't just like demonstrations. They were actually fun events. So if you were hosting, you were given merchandise as a sign of gratitude for letting the company use your home <laughs> and your personal network. And there were also games. So people would fill up a Wonder Bowl full of grape juice and then they would toss the Wonder Bowl around the room to show how um, this Tupperware item was leak proof. These parties also became a way to connect with old friends, make new ones, and participate in a booming consumer economy, all in the comfort of a friend's or your personal living room. It was also kind of like a temporary relief in the day because housewives, even though technically they were buying a product for their kitchens, um, they got to take a break from running errands and doing chores and they got to socialize. So in saying all this, a lot of people don't consider Tupperware to have been an MLM in the 1950s. It is now, but in the 1950s, it was considered to be a direct sales company. But a lot of MLMs have adapted the home selling party made popular by Tupperware. Throughout the 20th century, MLMs became more and more popular. But why? Why did people like this business model? 
For one thing, the MLM model shifts the recruiting and training of new salespeople onto the existing sales force. You don't have to hire another HR team. And what the existing sales force gets is compensation from recruiting a downline. But, you know, even in the 1970s, there were people who were still skeptical about uh, MLMs and how they could be shady endeavors. In 1973, the New York Times reported product-based pyramid schemes to be the number one consumer fraud in the metropolitan area. Then in the mid-1980s, a lot of traditional direct selling companies started to suffer from an industry-wide slump, including Avon Cosmetics. Meanwhile, at least five new MLM companies, Sunrider, Herbalife, Advocare, Newskin, and Melaleuca, were founded and experienced significant growth during this period. And in 1989, Amway, the largest MLM company, initiated a hostile takeover of Avon. Avon responded by calling Amway an admitted criminal. Amway soon withdrew its bid. But as a result of all this pressure, in 1991, Avon Cosmetics finally considered adopting an MLM structure under an initiative labeled Leadership and promoted by a Rick Goings, an Avon executive. The CEO, James Preston, rejected the move and Goings left the company. Despite criticizing Amway and rejecting these uh, transitions to MLM structures, Avon could just not sustain itself using a traditional selling method. I didn't actually know Avon was an MLM until like last week because the first time I heard about Avon was in the show Mad Men, which is like my favorite show ever. And I highly recommend watching it. It came out in 2007, I think. There's seven seasons, but honestly, it's so worth watching. And it's about this ad agency in the 1960s. So it's kind of like a period drama, but it's just very real to the time period. And they incorporate a lot of events that happened in the world. I'm getting off track. It's a really good show. But as I said, it's about an ad agency. And one of the clients that the ad agency works with is Avon. Other clients in the show are actual major companies that existed. So for instance, Coca-Cola, American Airlines, Utz Potato Chips, etc. And all these companies are very big, very legitimate. So that's obviously how I thought of Avon as well. And yes, well, technically MLMs can be legitimate. Like, let's be real. A lot of us don't have a lot of respect for MLMs. But I guess it makes kind of sense because Avon didn't transition into an MLM model until like... 30 years after the events of Mad Men. Now, Avon is one of the biggest MLMs in the world. And in 2009, they actually pushed their most expensive ad to date for the Super Bowl. And it was a very strange ad because instead of marketing any actual products, they were marketing like working at Avon. It was basically like a recruitment ad. <laughs> Rather than selling actual lipstick, they were selling income opportunities. Might I remind you, 2009, so we are still in a recession. This is a written response I received. Hello, I have a neighbor, I'll call her Jenny, stereotypical white suburban soccer mom type. She's attempted to get my family involved in multiple MLM schemes over the years. My favorite was the rainbow vacuum, which involved Jenny and a rainbow salesman coming to her house for a multi-hour demonstration of the vacuum in action. <laughs> it did actually work pretty well. So well that the patches of our carpet that were demonstrated on are, to this day, noticeably cleaner than the rest of our otherwise dingy carpet. It's been eight years and we still have these small white stains on the floor, which I think is hilarious. 
Anyway, we later found out that we were subjected to the demonstration because the vacuum costs an unreasonable amount of money, but customers get a discount if they sign up 10 other households for a demonstration or something like that. Naturally, Jenny added us to her list of unsuspecting victims, as she did with many of her MLMs over the years. The strangest experience we've had with her, however, is she might be part of a dog MLM. Hear me out. A few years ago, she bought a Golden Doodle, a very expensive designer dog. Then a few months later, she bought another from the same breeder. We live on the same street. We're in the same tax bracket. For a long time, I was unsure of how she paid for two designer dogs from a premium breeder. But in the fall of 2021, I was stalking the Instagram account she manages from the perspective of these dogs. Yes, it's cringeworthy, but I know it's much better than if she were to exploit her human children for content. Anyways, she posted a pregnancy announcement for one of her dogs, with many updates along the way until it gave birth right around Thanksgiving. Almost exactly a year later, the same dog was pregnant again, and once again gave birth right around Thanksgiving. I was at Jenny's house on Christmas Day 2021 and 2022, dog-sitting newborn puppies while the family was traveling for the holiday. Will I be there again on Christmas 2023? It's not unlikely, dot dot dot. <laughs> Anyway, all these puppies, once matured, were given back to the breeders the adult dogs came from to be sold. Both times, the entire process was documented on Jenny's dog's Instagram. I don't really care about the ethics of breeding dogs in general, but repeatedly breeding your pet dog and using its puppies to pay it off the initial cost of purchase, that does not sit well with me. Not sure if this qualifies as an MLM, but it's definitely unsettling. Oh my god, so much to unpack here. First of all, I just love um this person's shade towards jenny and i'm also obsessed with how they basically got a free house cleaning <laughs> with this multi-hour vacuum demonstration the dog thing i have no idea what's going on here i would like to know because i've never heard of anyone paying off the cost of their dog by breeding more dogs but i don't know if it's considered an mlm just because She's not recruiting other people to also buy the dogs and then to breed them. I think if she was recruiting, then it would be more of like pyramid scheme, LMLM territory. But I think this just happens to be some like weird afterpay type of situation. <laughs> yeah, unsure, but definitely some type of scheme and definitely something that someone who is very into MLMs would be susceptible to. Most MLMs seem to focus heavily on women. We can see this in the type of products most companies sell, like makeup, clothing, weight loss regimes, kitchen gadgets, and sex toys. But it's actually the structure of these companies that really is predatory towards women. The allure of making an independent income from home appeals to stay-at-home mothers today just as much as it did to housewives in the 1950s selling Tupperware. The Direct Selling Association, a trade organization of MLMs, estimates that 74% of the 16 million Americans involved in direct selling are women, which is why detractors have taken to calling participants Huns, a nod to the sorority speak that reps encourage their recruits to emulate. Alienation of mothers also plays a significant role. Women confined to homes are significantly more at risk of social isolation. And MLMs know this, and that's why they target a lot of these women communities. So mommy groups and Bible studies and other suburban neighborhood social scenes. A lot of MLMs will even co-opt the language of community in their marketing. Avon's recruitment materials note, connectivity and community have always been critical to Avon's direct selling model.
Even on TikTok, women who are involved with MLMs use the MLM boss babe hashtag. And if you scroll through their videos with that hashtag, you can see how MLM girls are pitching the gospel of MLMs as a promise to not only bring financial prosperity, but also to be a way to find friends. Let's be clear, MLMs are not a community, even if your friends are all doing it. It just can't be a community because it borrows so much from um, a neoliberal type of organization. For example, MLMs tend to preach the gospel of Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book. Lean In is a 2000s era self-help guide and it was a bestseller. Nowadays, the Lean In philosophy has been criticized to the gods and the reason is because Sandberg's philosophy argues that the key to feminist progress is individual change, which is something that doesn't fly anymore in our um, 2020s society. She covers in the book how the only thing standing between women and economic freedom is themselves, which of course ignores all the systemic obstacles that are actually hurting women and other marginalized groups. As Frankie Mistrangelo writes in their work, Theorizing Girl Boss Culture, an MLM community member is someone who assumes complete responsibility for their failure to recruit and meet sales goals. They never critique the MLM system for their hardship, despite the fact that these structures are often set up to make success in them impossible. Most of the people who called in to talk to me about their experiences with MLMs have cited exactly this, where they were told by their higher ups, by their upline, that if they couldn't make sales, it was their fault, that they were trying hard enough, that they weren't motivated enough to make money. The pervasive digital personal branding of girl bossism is also related to how MLMs recruit with aspirational smoke and mirrors. In the 1960s, the beauty MLM Mary Kay began its longstanding tradition of rewarding top saleswomen with pink Cadillacs to signal success to parties potentially interested in becoming sellers themselves. In 2021, Mary Kay promoted the program with the slogan, Be a boss babe behind the wheel of one of these amazing cars. <laughs> Today, every popular MLM influencer's feed, and yes, there are multiple MLM influencers, um, is like this pink Cadillac rhetoric on steroids. They all have financial independence, not even just independence, financial success exhibited by lavish spending and all these like, nice trips they get to go to. And they also have close-knit friends. And you can have it too. If you join my team of boss babes and buy my starter kit. <laughs> Oh, and also about the Cadillac. Apparently, these are the stipulations. The consultant isn't given the car outright. It's a two-year co-op lease paid for by Mary Kay. And when the two years is up, the consultant can elect to sell the car back to the dealership or purchase it herself. There's this pressure to do it all. Like, you can have it all. And if you can't do it all, then you're bringing down the feminist cause or you're just simply a bad mother. This is why so many women joined LuLaRoe, an MLM company that offers young mothers the soothing promise. Sign up to be a retailer and you could run a successful virtual boutique out of your own homes while still being present for your kids. LuLaRoe sells women's clothing and even their designs appeal to the stresses of being a working mom. The clothes are functional for chasing around young children, accommodating of changing bodies post-birth, yet still cute enough to be socially acceptable outside the home. According to Roberta Blevins, who was part of the LuLaRoe MLM scheme, LuLaRoe women added her to Facebook groups, texted her, invited her to parties that doubled as fashion sales, and showered her with encouragement. Blevins said, They saw me. They're like, she's bubbly. She's energetic. She knows how to use social media. She's an asset to moving this forward. At that point, I was just another walking dollar sign. But the reality of being part of this particular MLM was actually a lot darker. 
Lachey Kimbrough Benson, who started as an administrative assistant at the company's headquarters in 2015, told The Guardian, A lot of people lost their marriages, their lives were in shambles, people were selling breast milk for startup costs. Are you kidding me? People were taking out loans, all kinds of stuff. And the founders, Mark and Deanne, knew that. But can we really blame women, especially mothers, for falling for the allure of these kinds of schemes? I don't think so. Many women, once they have kids, are kind of forced out of these formal job institutions, either because maternity leave benefits are not cutting it, high childcare costs, so they have to instead take care of the child 24-7 because they can't afford someone to do it for them, and or there's just a lot of weight um, that goes into the unpaid labor of running a household. And it is like essentially a full-time job, especially if you have a deadbeat husband. Hey, Nina. Um, my name is Sydney. I live in Florida. Um, in the beginning of 2020, I had to move back to Florida. I was living in New York for about two years, long story short, just like couldn't hack it. And so I was kind of in a situation where I definitely felt desperate for money. And I came back to live with my, live with my mom. And um, my mom has always sort of been in that MLM world, but, like, sort of, like, just on the outside. So, like, being very aware that it's, like, oh, I have to sign up a bunch of people, but, like, I like the products. Like, that's always sort of how she's been. So when I moved back in February, uh, she has this meeting with this woman from Mary Kay. And this woman is absolutely gorgeous, like, fire red hair. Like, she wears this bright, beautiful lipstick. She's so... Her disposition so sunny and nice, and, like, for someone who, like, just moved back to New York, like, I just left, like, my best friends. I'm, like, dead broke. I have no job. I have no prospects. I'm terrified. You know, she's very attractive. I want to listen to what she has to say, basically. She's basically, like, so your mom told me that you had to move back, and that it was a really bad situation. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm really grateful that my mom is, like, awesome and that, like, you know, we could definitely help each other out. And she essentially was trying to get me to become a Mary Kay consultant, even though I'm literally, like, dead broke. Like, you have to put up a bunch of money to do it. Like, to in order to become a Mary Kay rep, you have to put up a bunch of money to, like, buy the product. I had no money. And so she's like, is there somewhere, like, do you have a credit card? Is there someone that you can borrow money from? Like, I'm literally, I'm not in debt. Well, I'm in debt now. I wasn't in debt then. So basically, like, you should get in debt so you can become a married rep. But just the sheer fact is that she was gunning so hard for someone who was obviously down on their luck. It, like, opened my eyes uh, to just everything, and I did more research, and that is my story. Okay, first of all, I am really sorry to hear about these terrible 2020 um, experiences that you dealt with. That really sucks, and I hope you're in a better place now. You know, this stuff like makes me upset because I just can't imagine how delusional you must be to offer um, to try to recruit someone into a business model that you have to realize only like 1% of the people involved actually benefit from. And it'd be different if you were trying to recruit someone to work at a place and the prospects of being rich were slim but there were there was at least like a guarantee of making money so you know if you were just working at any store 
the the prospect of becoming a shareholder at the end of your time there is really low, but at least you're still making money working at a store. I think with MLMs, it's like really bad because the potential to lose money is actually really high. I actually read this article on Insider about this woman who used to be part of an MLM and she was making like a lot of money. She was making like $40,000 a month on top of getting all these uh, perks like a dream car and a Louis Vuitton bag, etc. from her upline for her good performance. And it just goes back to one of those things again where it's like people will just do anything for money. She ended up leaving because she did sober up to the reality, but she also mentioned that she was only making $8,000 a month when she left, which is still a lot of money, but considerably less than $40,000. And I don't know this woman, but I feel like if we were just talking hypothetically, if you were making $40,000 a month, you probably wouldn't step down if you continued to make that money or more. It's only that if you were losing money or making less money than what you were were making that you would actually be able to get a reality check, which is really sad. But I also want to acknowledge that a lot of MLMs do use like brainwashing tactics to get people to spread the gospel to begin with. Kind of like a cult, kind of like Scientology. Because this same woman also said in this um, interview, like when she first started working there, she was really uncomfortable promoting on Facebook and social media to buy her products. And when she voiced those uh, insecurities, embarrassments, whatever, the brand was just like, oh, this is so normal and that you're just afraid. That's why you're it's just an uncomfortable experience because it's a new experience but that's all fine. And, you know, they use this kind of language, almost like therapy speak, I want to say, um, to get you used to certain ideas or to like believe that everything happens for a particular reason or, you know, you just have to trust the process. So, ugh, yeah. A growing number of MLMs are also relying on social media to pitch their businesses. And it makes sense because most businesses are doing this anyway. You can just reach so many more people from all over the world. It doesn't have to be limited to your local community. And referral links and credit cards take minutes to type in. MLMs will sometimes even work with influencers directly to gain public legitimacy. For example, a lot of momfluencers who are not MLM sales reps, might I add, promoted Beauty Counter's Dew Skin Tint and Moisturizer in 2021. Beauty Counter, despite its elevated branding, is an MLM. But I think working with influencers who are not fully associated with the brand allows them to just appear as any other beauty brand. A lot of people also want to become social media influencers. There's always that statistic that goes around where they interview a handful of kids who say their dream job is to be influencers, which sets up social panic because only 20 years ago, kids were saying they wanted to be astronauts. My opinion on that is like, of course, kids are not going to want to be doctors or lawyers or any of these kind of once coveted careers because they break the bank. Medical school, law school, these are financial risks that people have to take and nowadays like there is no guarantee that you're going to be successful after doing this schooling there's like no guarantee that you're going to be able to pay back this debt 
Like, I think if college was free or at least way cheaper than it currently is, more people would want to go into these um, quote unquote, like professional elite jobs. But that's not the reality. Even if you do have the money to go to school, these professions take a lot of time, a lot of energy. They're very stressful professions and the benefits are low until you're like maybe age 55. Whereas the influencer pipeline, if you can make it, it's really nice. There's no doubt about that. You can make a lot of money with very little work at a young age. So I think it's more that we have structural issues that cause children to devalue other occupations. It's not because children genuinely want to be vapid gummy bear hair vitamin pushers. I'm getting sidetracked. (laughs) The point is a lot of people want to be influencers because of this perceived all play, no work model. And because MLMs have started adapting social media influencing into their business models, some vulnerable people can conflate being an influencer with being an MLM sales rep. For instance, Metro UK interviewed this woman, Alice, who signed up to sell Kangen machines in 2017 when she was just 18. And the reason was because she wanted the quote-unquote wellness influencer lifestyle. Kangen machines, by the way, are these $5,000 water filters sold by the MLM BAM, short for Breakaway Movement. And BAM offers more than just paint Cadillacs on loan. Founder Amelia Whalen and the woman she'd tag in her Instagram posts, who were also part of Breakaway, would post photos of themselves renting luxury tree houses in the rainforest, or chartering a ship to sail around secret islands, or going to glamorous retreats where attendees could enjoy yoga, breathwork, and bonding activities. Kind of reminiscent of influencer trips. <laughs> Except rather than leaving your fate up to the algorithmic gods to achieve these things, these MLM recruiters were here to hold your hand and get you that success you wanted or so they claim. Alice reflects on the experience of working for BAM, saying, I wanted the lifestyle of sell water, do nothing. But I think gradually I matured and started to see more clearly what was actually happening. The dream of moving to Bali or Hawaii with these like-minded people got slammed with practical realities. Another former member of the company said, I didn't care at all about Kanga machines. I saw beaches and coconuts and I thought, I want that. After one month, I had had one sale and thought, why is this so hard? I felt like I was selling a dream and I felt so ashamed to have been a part of that. It's also no surprise that MLMs have adapted social media influencing into their businesses, mostly because as we know, being an influencer is a woman-dominated arena and a lot of non-influencer women also buy products because their favorite influencers market them. And MLMs have known this for a while, like social media was exploited as a recruitment tool early on. Before most sales professionals became accustomed to video conferencing during the pandemic, MLM moms would be selling their products via Facebook Live video feeds from their living rooms. The, hi hun, I've got an amazing business opportunity for you, message is normally how recruitment begins. It ends with you having to buy an expensive starter kit or products to sell on to family and friends via social media. As Sophie Dickinson writes for Vice, suddenly you've got a back room full of alkaline water filters, business opportunity carrier bags, or fake gentleman's pride aloe vera aftershave. 
MLMs also tend to prosper among religious communities, though not all of them. Something that I learned recently, which I thought was really interesting, is that um, some Islamic scholars and governing bodies consider MLMs as haram due to their duplicitous business practices. According to Sedomir Nesterovich in his book, Islamic Marketing, in Saudi Arabia, there is a fatwa banning multi-level marketing schemes. So companies like Amway, Mary Kay, Oriflame, or Herbalife would face problems in implementing their usual selling methods. A fatwa, by the way, is a legal opinion or a decree that is handed down by an Islamic religious leader. So to get around this, young Saudi women who were interested in MLMs would sell their products over social media. But MLMs tend to be most popular among fundamentalist Christian and Mormon groups. We all know that Utah is a center of Mormon cultural influence, and so it's maybe unsurprising that per capita, Utah has more MLMs than any other state. These MLMs include LipSense, doTERRA, NewSkin, Young Living, Nature Sunshine, Tahitia Noni slash Morinda, Amway, Melaleuca, Newways, Thrive, Zango slash Zija, Unique, Jamberry, and Unicity. What is the link between Mormonism and MLMs. Mormon writer Jana Reese wrote an explanation on the religious news website back in 2017. She writes a list of 10 reasons, which I will share with you. So the first reason is insularity. Mormons tend to be trusting, especially of other Mormons. They tend to want to believe that other Mormons are good because surely if they know and believe in the gospel, then they want the best for other people and aren't trying to cheat people out of money. Reason number two, money as a blessing. Many Mormons believe in the principle that if someone has money, then they must be blessed by God. Three, Mormons encourage women to stay at home. So Utah has one of the highest concentrations of stay-at-home mothers in the entire country, um, according to a national study by the New York Times, which estimates 46% of prime-age women in Provo are not working, while 8% of men are not. Reason number four, Mormons have a built-in network complete with phone numbers, physical addresses, and emails. They may not think twice about using this information to send out invitations to their parties, even if using ward lists for business purposes is against the rules of the church. Um, reason number five, door-to-door experience. Former Mormon missionaries are used to sales techniques. They are not afraid of rejection and they are sometimes very aggressive. Six, Mormons are used to hearing testimonials and connecting that to a deeper truth. Some might argue this means Mormons are particularly vulnerable to anecdotal evidence. Number seven, Mormons often hear people scoffing at our religious ideas, our founder, and our scripture. Because we've grown accustomed to that, we may be more likely to shrug off criticisms even when we shouldn't. Number eight, Mormons are comfortable with a hierarchical institution where people at the top know more than people at the bottom and to be paying money upstream, which I guess um, would make them more comfortable with the idea of an upline and a downline. Number nine, Mormons have a tendency to believe that they are chosen or special and may be more easily led to believe that an opportunity has come to them from God rather than dismissing things that are too good to be true. And last reason, number 10, sadly, Mormon church meetings do not lead Mormons to ask hard questions. Instead, we may be more vulnerable to being led to ask the questions that people want us to ask. If a question slash answer format is offered, we may not think more deeply. Yeah, and I think a lot of fundamentalist Christian groups also have similar reasons for why the people in these communities are at risk of joining MLMs. But I want to go back to this whole stay-at-home mothers thing because even though there is like a high number of stay-at-home mothers in Utah, like it is harder to be a stay-at-home mother now than it was in the 1950s. I mean that financially, not like emotionally, mentally, because I'm sure women in the 1950s were struggling, 
but I mean that like in the 1950s it was more mainstream (laughs) it was more common for women to stay at home so a middle class family could afford things just from the um, husband the father's salary but that's not really the case anymore ever since the majority of america went double income households costs have risen to reflect that So now like it is really hard to be able to take care of an entire like four person family just on one person's income unless that person is like making bank and working at Silicon Valley. Anyways, this Mormon woman and LipSense consultant Alex Garner told local Utah News that she estimates about 75% of the Utah women she knows are involved in direct sales. Some because they want to stay in the workforce and others because they want to contribute to household income. So going back to LuLaRoe, the company was actually founded by a Mormon couple, Mark and Deanne Stidham. And there was actually a docuseries expose called Lula Rich that revealed the darker sides of the company. For example, top saleswomen alleged that they were pushed by the Stidhams to have weight loss surgery to conform to the couple's idealized image of what women should look like. These saleswomen also had to wear LuLaRoe clothing, and there was a religious slant for a lot of things. For example, Mark Stidham would uh, quote the Book of Mormon at company events. Even weirder, rather than these jobs um, being pitched as ways for women to become financially independent, as is the case with a lot of MLMs, LuLaRoe saleswomen alleged that they were also pressured to recruit their husbands to eventually take over their jobs. As Mahita Gajanin wrote for Time Magazine, eventually it became clear that LuLaRoe was pushing forth a very specific idea of what empowered women and families should look like. Heterosexual with a man in charge and everyone wearing patterned clothes. In rare instances though, relying on a religious community to uplift your business can backfire if the community thinks what you're pushing is immoral or even satanic. For example, last year, BuzzFeed News covered the story of influencer Madison Vining, who also was a top seller for the MLM Young Living, which is one of the biggest essential oil companies. The New Yorker reported in 2017, along with its main rival, Duterra, that both companies reached $1 billion in sales annually and served millions of customers. In 2021, Vining made a big announcement on Instagram that she was quitting her job at Young Living. This was an especially big shock because Vining had worked for Young Living for more than eight years and had even reached the highly coveted Royal Crown Diamond status. Sellers with that status make on average, wait for it, $1.6 million annually or $137,000 a month according to the company's 2019 income disclosure statement. Meanwhile, according to a 2016 public income statement, more than 94% of Young Living's 2 million active members made less than a dollar that year. So obviously, everyone wants to know why Madison would leave this amazing job that was making her a multi-millionaire. Well, a few days later, Madison and her husband Tyler announced that they were joining a new wellness-focused MLM, Modare, which is best known for its collagen supplements. So, rumors immediately went around that the couple had gotten a huge payout or some other incentive to leave. It was only in 2022, months later, that Madison finally issued a statement for why she left. One of the reasons was because of, quote, Satan and his demons. While this sounds extremely bizarre, she's not the only one who left Young Living after feeling that, quote, demonic forces were spreading darkness among Young Living members. 
Another former seller, Melissa Truitt, went as far as labeling the company a cult in an Instagram story highlight she posted to her account but later deleted. Truett also accused the company of spreading demonic propaganda through a New Age self-help book it sent to its members in early 2022. She urged Christians still working for Young Living to flee or risk their souls. Okay, if Young Living was going to be accused of any kind of shady behavior, you would think it would be for their dubious history. <laughs> If you don't know, the founder of Young Living, Gary Young, pitches the story about how he grew up in Idaho in a cabin and in his early 20s, a tree fell on him, fractured his skull, ruptured his spine, and broke 19 of his bones. The doctors told him he would never walk again, but then he decided to try a diet of nothing but water and lemon juice, and suddenly, after 253 days, he regained feeling in his toes. I mean fantastic, I guess. Um, I'm glad he can walk again, and I have no scientific understanding of how that happened, but the results of this uh, miracle eventually led him to get involved in alternative medicine, and here's where it gets irresponsible. In 1982, Young opened a health center in Spokane, Washington that included birthing services. One of the babies he attempted to deliver, his own daughter, died after spending an hour underwater in a whirlpool bath. The death was ruled an accident, but the counter coroner said that the baby would likely have lived if she had been delivered under conventional conditions. The following year, he said in the presence of undercover detectives that he could detect cancer with a blood test. He was then arrested for practicing medicine without a license. Around the same time, Young opened a clinic in Tijuana. John Hurst, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, submitted a blood sample posing as a patient and was told that it showed signs of aggressive cancer and liver dysfunction. A health educator suggested that Hurst undergo the clinic's $2,000 a week detox program. When Hurst revealed that the blood sample had come from a cat, a healthy 7-year-old 20-pound tabby cat named Boomer, the health educator replied that the cat was not healthy and probably has leukemia. The cat did not, for the record. Then in 2000, Young opened the Young Life Research Clinic in Springville, Utah, which administered essential oils and other alternative therapies to patients with heart disease, depression, and cancer, among other conditions. The clinic employed a pediatrician named Sherman Johnson, who had recently had his medical license reinstated. It was initially revoked because of malpractice. About a decade earlier, Johnson had been investigated by the state medical board after a woman had died while he was treating her for cancer. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, a nurse raised questions about the woman's death, so the body was exhumed, and it was determined that she had had multiple personality disorder, not cancer. But Johnson had believed her story that she had been injected with cancer by a group of witches and gay doctors and gave her Demerol, which is an opioid, and she died from an overdose. In 2005, the Young Life Clinic settled a lawsuit with a patient who claimed that infusions of vitamin C had caused renal failure, almost killing her. Young closed the Utah Clinic and opened one in Ecuador. Young Life's direct competitor and fellow MLM, Dutera, has also made crazy claims, including the claim that their essential oils could treat, prevent, or even cure COVID. They were fined by the FTC for saying this. A lot of the sketchy MLMs are honestly the wellness ones. There's also Longevity International, which markets in excess of a thousand products, including nutritional supplements, sports and energy drinks, cosmetics, and coffees, with the claim that, quote, right now, people across the globe are transforming their health and their wealth by living the Longevity lifestyle. 
Meanwhile, Tina.org found dozens of examples of unsubstantiated health claims being made by Longevity, its founder, distributors, scientists, and others, including the actor Danny Glover, who are associated with the company. Longevity claims its products can treat, cure, mitigate, and or prevent cancer, diabetes, autism, ADHD, anxiety, MS, and the list goes on. This is a written reply I received. My experience with MLMs come from a place of anger slash sadness and disgust. Thankfully, I've never fallen victim to joining an MLM, but lots of people I know have. I come from a working class family and MLMs love to target us. One of my cousins got involved with an MLM, I think it was Primerica, and the way her mentors went about recruiting her and us was so predatory. This was during the height of the pandemic, and they had my cousin send out texts to everyone saying that she started her own company and was having a virtual party with her financial and spiritual mentors without ever mentioning the company. That probably should have been a red flag, but I didn't catch it. When we all got on Zoom, they still never outright mentioned the company name or what the business actually was. They just kept talking about how as Polynesians slash Samoans, it is in our culture to take care of our family and our elders, and this opportunity will allow us to do that with ease and give us financial freedom and the ability to break generational curses. Mind you, this was an older Polynesian couple preying on younger Polynesians who they knew were in desperate situations for money. They also used the fact that a lot of them are Christian and used lots of religious terminology and faith to try and get us to trust them. I was so grossed out by the way they went about it. It took till the very end of their presentation to kind of mention their business, which was basically selling life insurance. But of course, they tiptoed around that the entire time. I texted my cousin after her presentation and refused to give her mentors my contact information and let her know that I thought it was an MLM and I don't think she ever joined. I remember some Polynesian acquaintances slash friends from college had fallen into the same scheme where their mentors approached them as spiritual and financial support. They were targeting low-income people in the Polynesian community and knew what to say that would trigger an emotional response. They knew our culture and our traditions and our values and used them to get people to sell life insurance under guise of support slash love slash freedom when in reality it's to make them richer. They used family guilt and cultural pressures to have people join their MLM and promising financial freedom. Also a new car, I roll emoji. An old childhood friend of mine recently joined Monat and has been so fucking annoying. I feel like her entire online persona and social media accounts have all gone from her posting about her family to only Monat. She's also so relentless in the way she tries to get people to join, texting people nonstop, asking them to join or purchase products from her. And if anyone says no, she tries to guilt trip them. Please keep in mind that she sent me these texts after I already said no to her on IG and in a group chat that she put me in with my mom. It's the relentlessness that gets me with anyone who joins an MLM, no matter which one it ends up being. I know that this friend of mine is struggling financially, so it makes me so sad that these MLMs target and prey on people who are just victims of an unjust capitalist society and will do anything they can to support themselves and their loved ones. Wow, this is a long message, but I thought it was really important to share um, because I didn't know that the uh, MLMs were penetrating Polynesian communities. It makes total sense, though, knowing that they go after people of color and working class uh, communities and religious communities. And I also didn't think about how these uh, people who are roped into it with a specific cultural background would use their cultural values as a way to recruit. Like, it makes total sense because that's kind of what I was reading about when I was um, talking about the Mormons and how a lot of Mormons who are involved in MLMs will use tenets of the Mormon church to recruit people. So 
it hurts my brain to know that all this stuff is like constantly happening all throughout the world and how unethical it all is. Especially when you think about it, like if there are elders of these communities who are in MLMs and they're trying to recruit you, as a younger person, it could be viewed as disrespectful if you don't agree with them or you could, I mean, worse comes to worse, you're like excommunicated from your community because you're not following what the elders of the community are trying to get you into. And then you lose that community. So it's just not a good situation on any front. But I really want to focus on you saying your friend has been so annoying because this is also something that I've noticed a lot with MLM stories where it's like these women usually who get into MLMs, they end up isolating themselves from their friends and from the community that actually cares about them, which is really sad because when they lose that community, then all they have left is this MLM community, which is not good. And I don't blame anyone for not wanting to be friends with someone who's in an MLM anymore. Like, I don't think I would want to be friends with someone who's trying to constantly push products to me. So it's just like an upsetting situation all around. And I really hope that your friend gets help and leaves um, or, you know, at least like stops guilt tripping people and relentlessly pursuing people in a way that drives her friends away from her because that's just going to put her in a more vulnerable spot. So I think one thing that we have to be really careful about when we're talking about MLMs is not framing the people who join them as being stupid because they're not stupid. They're just vulnerable or in a vulnerable situation at that point in time. And I'm sure that other options that exist, like other alternatives for them to have taken, were probably also not great either. MLMs purposely target college students, stay-at-home mothers, and insular religious communities, as we've already discussed, for their vulnerabilities, but there are so many other groups as well. For example, MLMs took advantage of the pandemic for recruitment. At the height of COVID, the MLM sector was actually booming, with companies like Avon boasting a 53% increase in sales representative signups in the first eight months of 2020. This is no coincidence. Reps were told by their higher-ups to go on social media and to actively recruit, to be posting every day, to be going on live, telling people with job insecurity, people who had places of employment shut down, people who were afraid to find work that wasn't remote, they were told to bring these people in. MLMs also target immigrant communities. Herbalife in particular is an MLM that estimates that Latino immigrants account for about 60% of its US sales, made through its network of independent distributors. Herbalife president Des Walsh claims that the company does not target any specific demographic and its popularity among Latinos exploded in recent years when U.S. distributors imported the Nutrition Club concept from Mexico, which is second to the United States in Herbalife sales. However, even if not intentional from the beginning, Herbalife does actively market to Latino communities now. For example, they recently signed a 10-year, $44 million sponsorship of the Los Angeles Galaxy professional soccer team, which has a massive Latino fan base. And each year, it holds a national convention in Spanish called Extravaganza Latina. But um, going back to how Herbalife makes a lot of sales in Mexico, yes, MLMs have gone global. And the effects can be very serious for a country's economy and even political institutions. 
For example, from 1996 to 1997, there was a dramatic rise and collapse of pyramid schemes in Albania. At their peak, the nominal value of the pyramid scheme's liabilities amounted to almost half of the country's GDP. Many Albanians, about two-thirds of the population, invested in these schemes. And I use the term pyramid scheme instead of MLMs because most of these schemes were pyramid schemes in the sense that they had no real legitimate assets. So they were kind of busted from the start. So naturally, when the schemes collapsed and went bankrupt, a lot of people were affected and very unhappy. There was rioting, governmental collapse, and an estimated 2,000 people were killed. The reason it was so serious in Albania, according to Christopher Jarvis, who wrote this article on pyramid schemes in Albania for the International Monetary Fund papers, staff papers, was because the country was still rebuilding its economy, having started its transition from being a one-party communist state in 1991. I feel like there's no surprise that there is a robust anti-MLM community online. And a lot of people who are part of this anti-MLM community are people who were once part of MLMs and who left because of the reasons we talked about, or people who work in finance and business and... Generally, there's a lot of like good information being touted by this community, like by people trying to raise awareness of these scams. So I think it's a positive thing because um, with MLMs becoming way more prevalent on social media and using social media as a recruiting tactic, there's got to be like something to balance out the evil. You know what I mean? So another another force on the internet that's telling people, don't do this, please don't do this. But I think the the downside of people finding out about this and just kind of taking it for face value is that there's a lot of like condescending commentary towards people who are involved in MLMs. Like there's so many memes that go around, which I don't think is like an issue. I think memes are fine. But the more insidious stuff is when commentary YouTubers or TikTokers will rag on someone like an actual person's profile and call them out for being like stupid um reading their post and just like making fun of what they're saying i think that can be really mean because we don't know what these people um have gone through and we don't know their reasons for joining mlms and sometimes they joined because there were no other options available and yeah i, I think it's just unhelpful the people that everyone should be making fun of are the people who are literally running the whole thing. So now I want to introduce Sophie Dickinson, who is a writer for The Telegraph, but I really wanted to talk to her for this specific topic because in 2020, she wrote an article for Vice called The Get Rich Quick MLM Schemes Targeting Gen Z During Lockdown, which is one of the major sources used for the research of this episode. Okay, so just jumping right in here with our first question. For many entrepreneurs, their first customers are their friends and family. Um, because, you know, like if you're starting a new business, obviously like the only network you have are your friends and family to support you. So what do you think makes the exploitment of social capital for an MLM any different from just like a girl boss trying to start her own business? I think it's a really good question. And I think it's not a very clear difference i think if you're starting a business legitimately it's actually quite nice to get your family and friends involved because you're kind of saying look i'm so excited about this project why don't you get involved that's actually a very nice thing um and i think in some senses mlms are very similar 
because you're like, I found a way to make money very easily. Why don't you do the same thing? I think the difference is that when it's a legitimate business, you can quite clearly say like, this is where your money's going. I want to achieve X thing. I want to grow by X percent in a certain amount of time. It's quite rigid really in the legitimate business. Um, That's not often the case with MLMs. And I think that there's also not really the same pressure um, from a legitimate business as there is with an MLM because there'll be an external force in a multi-level marketing scheme telling you to get your sister involved, to get your mum involved. Now, if you had a real like financial advisor, they wouldn't be pressuring you to get your mum involved. Like that's not really a legitimate business proposition. So it's that sort of external pressure that's telling you to like add everyone you can as quick as possible without really thinking about the financial consequences. Now, it still seems nice because it's like I'm sharing my business profits with my family, but normally that's not a pressurized thing. And in your article, you did specifically talk about the pandemic and how it's affected the growth of MLMs online. So can you just like tell us what you've discovered about how social media plays into the whole recruitment process? Definitely. I mean, it's not like MLMs came about with the dawn of social media, but social media has been such a good skill for MLMs because basically the whole thing works on like making people feel like they're not good enough. And it's showing people that they can have a very nice lifestyle with very little work. Um, And obviously it's very easy to do that on social media because you can show like very nice pictures of you by the pool and like on holiday and say like, I'm doing these exact things specifically because I'm in an MLM. Um, So there's that element. It's great for like recruitment, but it's also good for MLMs because we're always contactable. So there's always the ability for those up the scale from you to be like pressuring you to do more. There's there's not the same sort of face-to-face contact needed, which means that you can be pressured constantly and people are pressured constantly. And that's very stressful. And I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit, but MLMs love a conference moment. They love to have like a weird like event, (laughs) like in Barcelona for a week. And these have their own weird, insidious reasons. But a lot of it is actually just so they can share pictures to Facebook and be like, this is my gang. These are the people who are like on the beach with me. And if you weren't here, you're not working hard enough. And if you want to get involved, you can just message me. So like a whole raft of reasons why they might use social media. And it's just, yeah, in COVID, obviously, that's the only way we had to like connect with other people. So it was so like useful for MLMs, basically. It also means you can like disappear quite easily. If your business is essentially just run off Facebook, you can delete your Facebook page and it's gone. Even like websites leave a bit of a trace, but a Facebook page, you can just get rid of it. And there's like, you never existed, which is very helpful if you're doing something slightly dodgy. Did you come across anything slightly dodgy when you were doing research on this? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, an absolute load. Um, There's a lot of them, actually, because I wrote that article, I think, in 2020 or 2021. A load of the ones that I was looking at then have disappeared or if they haven't fully disappeared, they've like switched into something else. So like a lot of them now also work in crypto. Um, And I wonder if that's going to be the sort of future of it. It's going to be blockchain based or something. It's not good. I'm wondering, so for these crypto um, MLMs, because, you know, we talk about how MLMs tend to target mostly women. And I feel like crypto and NFTs and stuff um, tend to be stereotyped as like a male-oriented activity. So do you find that these crypto MLMs, they're operated by men or are they also mostly operated by women? It's so interesting. I don't know whether they're like 
trying to get the bros involved now as well and that's like the whole deal um because they're like well we've missed out like half the population so let's do crypto too i half think that maybe there was always links between the kind of grifty culture that like we assume we assume that like mlms are a female thing and that crypto is a male thing but i think probably there's a lot more crossover than we realize because it's all that same kind of like grind set yeah gotta love my favorite gender hustlers are there specific people who will create new mlms so like the ones who had their mlms like fold because they couldn't make any profit are they like the type to keep starting new ones or do most people just quit when they can't make it (laughs) It's hard because these are like very slippery characters and they often kind of disappear and pop up elsewhere and it's quite hard to track them. Um, But yes, it does seem to be the same kind of people, in fact, the same people, closing down one, opening up another, jumping between things. And because, again, they're sort of like all weirdly self-employed, a lot of them actually have that sort of like digital nomad thing going on as well. So like there's not even like a country they're particularly based in. Part of me is like, that's actually a lovely lifestyle. Part of me is like, yeah, they're doing it deliberately. They can't be caught. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. There's definitely some like main characters. I'm not going to name anyone. But um, there are people <laughs> that seem to like end MLMs only to open up something very similar. But with this like nomadic lifestyle, I'm wondering how they're able to assert legitimacy um, when trying mm. to recruit people. Because I feel like... I don't know, maybe it's like my own digital literacy where I'm like, if someone isn't seem to be based anywhere, it feels like a little odd. I think it's so weird because it's like, that seems obvious that you'd, that that would be like a red flag. But I also think on some level, all of it's about like escaping the nine to five, not living a boring life, being able to travel all the time. And it's very aspirational in a sense. And so like, if this person is in like 10 countries every year, part of you is like, well, maybe I don't want that exact thing, but I would like to travel more. And so it's sort of like they have to do it to the extreme to show that like even a little bit is possible. There's something that we talk about a lot with MLMs where only a certain percentage, usually like 1% of the people involved actually make money. And I'm wondering why you think people still join them. Like with that statistic in mind, is that something that people register when they're mm. um, joining an MLM? Because I don't know, I just feel like yeah. that's that's so ubiquitous in our culture. It's crazy. I think that that stat is, I, I'm always, I mean, I know that stat, but it's it shocks me so much. It's so extreme and so silly. It's kind of like, how does it exist at all? But I think it's quite cleverly done in that like, it's not just about making money, even though that's obviously a huge part of it. It's this whole like new spiritual rebrand of your life whatever you're feeling dissatisfied with, whether you're like a stay-at-home mum and you feel like you don't have a purpose or you're like a Gen Z person who's just graduated from university and now you're feeling at a bit of a loss, it's like giving you purpose. And so it's not even really about the money. It's about like this huge community you're going to be a part of. You're making your own life. You're like earning money. You're self-empowered. And it's like this kind of language that they use to get you involved. And it does prey on people's like vulnerabilities. I feel very sorry for people, not to be patronizing, but I think that like you you can't like blame people for being sort of for buying into it and then also feeling slightly trapped because you're sort of told, yes, most people won't make money, but they said that about like Jeff Bezos and look at him now, like you've got to keep working and then maybe you'll be the one that breaks through. And that's a very tempting idea. And everyone sort of half believes that maybe they are the special one. So I think that like, even if it doesn't work for years and years, there's a sense that it might one day. 
going back to the whole camaraderie thing and like community and the idea that a lot of uh, people join MLMs because they're seeking that kind of community and a little less about the money. But I also feel like in those anti MLM community pages, like people are always complaining about their friends or family members joining MLMs. So do you find it strange that people will join an MLM for community, but then they end up isolating themselves from their actual community? People don't realize they're going to isolate their friends and family, I don't think, at first. I think they think, I'm going to have all my friends and family plus this big group Mm. of people just like me who've been waiting for me. And we're all like doing this shared project and it's, you know, a dream come true, but also I'll be making money. And I think that's how it starts out. It's so optimistic, but actually it's very cult-like in the sense that you've got to prove yourself and dedicate yourself to it at the expense of everything else. But I think that it's totally understandable because like we are all lonely I think we're living in like a very online world and there's always the potential to like speak to more people than we are speaking to by virtue of like being connected I think it's just a sort of natural urge really of living in like an internet age having said that this you know when MLM started in like the 30s and the 20s they really did prey on like women at home so it's definitely like loneliness that spurs people on because it's like you will find a community yeah, I really liked how in your article you kind of and and what you've said in this interview where you're like I don't blame like any individual person is just sort of like the system. Why do you think it's important to be like specifically like empathetic towards people who are part of these schemes especially when you know not to play devil's advocate but I opened a phone line where people called in to talk about their experiences and a lot of people were telling me about how hurt they were by their friends who were part of this or like how they got roped in and like lost all this money. So why do you think it's still important to be able to look at this from a more like holistic perspective and a more empathetic perspective? I think it's sort of a hard thing to do because like you say, people have lost a lot of money and that's quite the betrayal, um, especially if people you know have got you involved in something that maybe they also knew wasn't going to make you money that's really rubbish um but I think that like we've said they prey on people's vulnerabilities the people that I find reprehensible are the people at the very top because they're just sort of grifters that have seen an opportunity all they care about is their own personal profit and they will like cut and run as soon as things get a bit dicey and that's terrible but I think that like the only way that MLMs work is by preying on vulnerable people and if people have tried to recruit you They've done so because they feel like there's something missing in their life. That might be literally financial stability. It might be a community. It might be just because they feel a bit of a loss. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse, but it is sort of like, yeah, it's capitalism. Like, <laughs> like the answer is capitalism. It's like, it's just so rubbish. And like, I don't know, I think it's very common now to feel like we're not doing enough. It's not very different to a normal job in that it's like, you can always be working harder. And as a woman, if you're working harder, you feel like you're doing that at the expense of like domestic life and we're all trying to balance stuff so like I think that it's important to think about why people might do it in the first place and then try and be compassionate even if they're not particularly regretful because I think that it's also just really embarrassing I think people just are embarrassed (laughs) because it's like I've made my friends lose money that's rubbish like that's a terrible thing to do and I think they might feel quite a lot of shame about it and would rather everyone forgot about it than dwell on it and I also think that if we like write articles or speak about it in a way that's quite judgmental 
people won't leave because people are quite stubborn and they'll just be like, <laughs> well, I don't want to be mocked for being stupid. I'm I'm going to keep at it and prove them wrong. And also I won't ever speak about it again. I think if there's like a forgiving element to it, people might, I don't know, reevaluate the situation a bit. So do you think the anti-MLM community is actually like hurting more or do you think that um, it's good that we have like this kind of negative force to balance yeah. out <laughs> to balance out all the the boss babes <laughs> I think it's really difficult I think there's definitely controversy about the like especially the anti-MLM reddit because that's like it really does jump on everything I think it's quite a valuable resource because I think that we don't have organizations doing that work so if it can be detailed somewhere that's probably a good thing I think that like MLM's work like on the power of personal testimony because like it's all about someone being charismatic enough to convince another person to do it and so when people leave MLM's and they themselves are quite compelling I think it's useful for them to like make YouTube videos make TikToks and talk about it because it's sort of like the counter to how the recruitment works in the first place it's kind of like the anti-recruitment and there are studies out there like academic studies about MLMs and their power and whether or not they're just pyramid schemes often they are but people don't read them like people aren't like searching <laughs> for academic papers and so like if they can be synthesized into something a bit more pop culture then maybe that's a good thing but yeah I think that it's so important not to be like this specific person was a dick because they like recruited me and then I lost money because like they're not the problem like the whole thing right. is the problem. <laughs> I'm wondering though what do you think is like the difference between an influencer plugging products like every every day some some might do that um and just like a woman who's part of an MLM scheme also promoting products every yeah. day I mean it's a good question I guess influencers don't really recruit other like other people to be influencers so there's not that same like cycle of like needing people mm. to join to make the actual money um but yeah I guess there are also questions I mean obviously MLMs like need a product to not be a pyramid scheme. And so there's often like, you have to be seen to like be using the makeup or wearing the ugly leggings or doing whatever, <laughs> because you're showing that like you've, you've done the work and like you believe in the product, which is probably quite similar to being an influencer in a way. But like, I guess the difference is that like, influencers probably aren't buying those things, like they're being gifted it and mm. that's quite a different dynamic. Whereas like, I know of this one MLM in the UK where like, it's so weird. So like the whole thing was based around like business education, but actually to get in on it, you had to buy this six thousand pound water filter. And so oh, I think like I heard about even, this. So like even if you don't recruit anyone, the MLM as a whole has made money because they've just sold you a water filter for some reason. So it's like the product is actually just like a, a weird side business for them because they're making money on that if nothing else. <laughs> I can't believe you remember so much about this article. I I totally <laughs> didn't even realize that you wrote it in 2020 until I was looking at it again. And I was like, oh my God, like I feel so bad making her dig up this information. <laughs> no, it's it's so interesting. And like, I, it's actually been quite good to like look back on it and see if anything's changed since COVID because COVID was so good for MLMs. I think there was like in the UK, like a 30% increase in MLMs in like 2021. So like, it boomed. And then like, I'm kind of interested to see where these people are now. And yeah, I'm just curious to see how it continues, basically. I think that probably we'll move away from like the girl boss kind of language because that feels increasingly dated. 
I don't know. Like I said, like I think they're trying to get like it to be a bit more like broy. I think that they want it to be more like a web 3.0 kind of thing. They're like, we need and to it- start exploiting men too. There's a whole like yes, untapped fifty percent exactly. of the market. <laughs> exactly, and I really think that's going to happen. I also think that like I don't know. Maybe it's different in the US, but I think that like we're in a definite like kind of like dark place in terms of our like gender politics at the moment. And I wonder if people actually like don't even feel that they're girl bosses anymore. They don't want to be like even slightly feminist. And that's quite horrible. Um, Not that I'm saying that being a girl boss is good feminism, but, you know, I don't know. I think that that kind of like even like the sort of like lean in feminism, which, you know, is problematic in lots of ways has died a death I think because it's kind of lame but also because people are like actively turning against that kind of feminism at the moment at least in the UK mm. the key thing to think about is like if you think something's an MLM is it like is there pressure to recruit other people and are they selling a product kind of as a side thing and if so then it's probably an MLM because like normal businesses don't see the product as their like extra thing that's the main thing mm-hmm. it's quite weird well, I think we'll like end on that <laughs> depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Sophie. Okay, everyone, we've reached the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, don't forget to check out the Highbrow Instagram page, which is highbrow.pod on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday.